At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hmm? Hello. Hello. Alan, is that you? <laughs> it is a blast from your past. It's good to hear your voice. How are you? Good. How have you been? Absolutely crazy. It must be, uh, COVID must be over because it feels like exactly what life was like before COVID, <laughs> running around crazy and ragged and without my head on. Uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of us feel that way. And as much as we were longing to get back to normal, maybe not quite this much normal. I don't know. No, I'm with you on that. Uh, it's been like fair after fair after fair. And I kind of like those couple years off where I wasn't running around hauling goats everywhere and <laughs> sitting in a fair office. And I know you've had fairs as well, correct? Yep. I've judged several this year. Um, I'm actually just getting ready to go up and judge the Nebraska State Fair again this weekend. I did that last year. So yeah, fairs keep rolling along and hot weather and raising rabbits in it and all the good parts of summer. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And for me, <laughs> I, I don't really do that much with rabbits in the summer, except work at a fair with rabbits. But uh, my summers are, are goat shows it's crazy to to think about raising. I've really thought about it this year. Like you raise an animal a species, you know, you breed, you have a program, and you do this all year long. And then your show season is like a month long. I go to four shows, and then it's over. And that's that's where I'm at now. It's it's nuts. But I got to uh, actually I got to judge Angora goats last weekend. I flew up to Michigan to the Michigan Fiber Festival, and some familiar faces were there. The people that duo both in Angora goats and mohair and fiber and rabbits. Uh, Eric Stewart was there, and uh, Sandra White. She came up. She's an incredible fiber artist, and also incredible editor of our domestic rabbit magazine. And uh, Jody Adams, who's kind of new to the scene in Angora goats, but she and her son have had Neville and dwarfs and very awarded rabbits for quite some time. That sounds like a lot of fun. I saw pictures of you judging, and I wondered how much similar and different it is to rabbit judging. It, that's a great question. And everyone always asks, oh, Alan, you have a, a license to judge Angora goats? No, I don't have a license, but uh, nobody else does either. It's one of those things where uh, it's sort of uh, licensed by experience. So the people that judge Angora goat shows have just been doing it a long time. And uh, I've been doing it for about 20 years, but I've only judged, I think, two Angora goat shows in my life. So it, it's it's strange when you get in the ring and you don't have the, the, the language and the terminology as fluent or, you know, in your toolbox like we do at the rabbit judging tables. But you know what? It you, it gets a little, it's a little rough for maybe the first five minutes and then you just start rolling into it and it seems like you've done it a thousand times. Well, you do have a little practice with the mechanics of judging and sorting classes and giving comments and all of that good stuff. 
That definitely helps. But one thing that I'm sure you've seen in livestock shows too that they do is they the judge will pull out first place first, and then comments go to first place. Where in rabbits, we can do that, but typically, historically, we start with the you know the other end of the class and talk about the the ones that aren't winning before we have the the big moment where the unveiling of first place uh, places awarded. And I, I think I went back and forth on that when, when I was doing the goats, cause I was like, Oh yeah, this is life suck. I got to talk about first, first, but eh, it looked like I, I pulled it off. In other words. <laughs> so I helped with a horse show this year and apparently I, I was announcing some of the results and I guess some of the feedback that came back from the audience was, why is she announcing it from bottom to top? Oh, my <laughs> I'm God. I'm like, well, because that's how we do it in rabbits. <laughs> exactly. Oh, funny. Yeah, same same, same thing. But uh, we just get in that practice and that habit. And, and to be honest, I think it should be done from the the sort of loser end of the class first. It builds some suspense. You know, when you pull out first, first, and it's there and you give comments, it's like, wah, wah, wah. No one really cares and, and listens to the rest of it, right? Exactly. You know, the, I mean, honestly, that that's what everyone cares about. You know, who's going to win first place? And at Rabbits, I, I know, um, and I think it's odd. In the Dutch breed, not a lot of people hang around at the judging tables. And I love that part of it. Like, I, there's nothing more exhilarating to me about a rabbit show as being like a convention or national Dutch show. Having a rabbit on the table, it stays up in the top 10. It stays up in the top five. I mean, I'm standing there watching my heart's pounding. Like, that's the fun of it. If, you know, if you were going through these big classes and the judge announced first place, then everyone would really disappear because no one cares after yeah. that. <laughs> it's like uh, you're, you're ghosted after that. And the other yeah, thing is, exactly. in rabbits, I mean, when you're judging, I'm sure you do the same thing. You know, you get down to your top five and you may have them in that order, but there's still that chance that you may switch a few up and the one you had in first might move to second or third. You know, it's, it's, it's a very live sort of methodology and, and thought process. It is. So, yeah, it's interesting to see how other livestock are judged. And, you know, I do like some of the comparison comments that are made, um, you know, that maybe we don't do, you know, as often as we should, because we are both comparing rabbits to standard in terms of commenting on its own qualities. But we also, you know, maybe not as much as livestock judges comment on how it compares the other animals in the class. But so as we know, um, you all have been wanting some new episodes and we're really happy to hear that. But we have been a little busy this summer. Alan told you a lot about his goat shows. Um, I took a little trip this summer out to Pennsylvania to attend the grand opening of the brand new ARBA office and library. And that was really cool. I would not have missed it for the world. Um, I almost did. I actually ended up getting COVID right before the trip. Um, it was, you know, about a week and a half before. And even though I had all my shots, it hit me pretty hard with fatigue. So, you know, I, I was actually at one point looking at plane tickets thinking, well, I don't care what it costs. I'm not missing this, but I've got to get out there. Um, but anyway, I recovered. The energy comes back, you know, pretty exponentially once it gets going. Um, but it was a really cool trip for me on several levels. Not only was I able to go out for that and just be there for that historic and cool occasion, but I actually drove that Friday from Kansas to Ohio and stayed with ARBA Hall of Famer and legend Glenn Carr and then got to make that trip with him the next day, um, which was a lot of fun. It was really cool to just talk rabbits and talk about everything on the trip to and from. Um, I was on a pretty tight schedule, so I left that Sunday morning. Um, but it was a lot of fun. It was it was cool. Um, we got there a little bit early, 
and we're met by Eric and Josh and Rusty and Jim Rowland. And so we kind of got our own little initial tour of the office facility before the grand opening event. Um, and it's, it's incredible. You're going to hear a lot more about it in this episode, but um, believe me when I say it is absolutely incredible. I am super jealous that you got to <laughs> go out there and see it. I was back there in September when we did the, um, the interview with Eric and I saw the building and I saw the progress that he had made. But from what I saw on Facebook and in the domestic rabbits magazine, it is, it has had a complete transformation and I am so glad you got to go. I had every intention of going, but I could not afford that plane ticket. It was just, it's so expensive to fly right now. Um, but I got to live vicariously through your posts and so many posts on Facebook. And then in this interview today with someone that was very, very instrumental in pulling this incredible and monumentous occasion off. So uh, I've got to go back now myself. I'm dying to. It is, I mean, it's truly a, a shrine to the ARBA, to the hobby, and really just you know, kind of a love letter to it. it it's really cool. And I, I know for me, not only being there um, at the opening, but some of the the places, I don't want to spoil this uh, episode too much, but some of the rooms and some of the things, you know, there, it was really cool to be there, you know, with Glenn as he saw that and be able to just, you know, soak all that in. It, it was really cool. I, I would not have missed it for the world. Um, but yeah, it was it was a great trip, and I would encourage everyone to stop by if you're in the area. I promise you will not regret it. And you just described it perfectly. You called it a shrine, and it's really there's no place like it on the planet. It is finally that mecca, that place that we can go to for all things rabbits and caves. And it it's it's very cool. And I don't think that a lot of animal species have this sort of place to kind of go home to like we have now and what a great time and um, we are so fortunate in rabbits and KVs and the ARBA and it, to have this and it's it's going to be I think it's being called the museum and I don't know that it was initially slated to be called a museum but that's what it's become from what I can see yeah it is um, you know as you walk in that's that's what it looks like is a very very well done high-end museum and the work of the office and their employees is just incorporated into it. It's really, I've never seen anything like it. Amazing. Um, and Brian, you did this interview today. Uh, it's going to be a two-part one, correct? It is. There was just too many good things to uh, limit it to one. And so we're going to start with the first part of it today. We're going to cut it roughly in half. And then the next part will come out in two weeks. We are moving to a little bit different format. We're going to be releasing episodes every other week instead of every week, um, which just fits with our schedules a bit better because it does take some time behind the scenes to work on this and prepare for this. And we're both busy, busy people. And that's something that we feel is um, a little more sustainable without some <laughs> of our seasonal breaks. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll second that one. You know, it's, it's, it's more than, you know, we listen to uh, talk radio, or I listen to a lot of talk radio and other podcasts, and you just think that these kind of things just happen in conversation, but they certainly don't. There are hours of prep work to get uh, these episodes, you know, t to where we like them, and so that are most beneficial to our listeners. So I think that two episodes a month is, is as you said, more sustainable, and we have been so so lucky to be able to have this podcast. We're, we love our fans, and even when we travel... Uh, you know, like this summer, I mean, everywhere I go, if I'm around rabbit people and cavey people, 
Uh, we get so many good feedback, so much good feedback regarding the podcast. People love listening to it. So rolling into our fall season, we've got convention coming up. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it's that time of year already. Um, we've got loads more in store for you with some incredible guests to share with you and, and their stories. And uh, don't forget, the Rabbitry on Facebook will continue to serve as our hub for the Best in Show podcast. Uh, so if you're not following it, please do look up the Rabbitry on Facebook. And there are links to our previous episodes. We are at episode 40, but the first 39, they are still up there for you to geek out on. There are links in each. And it doesn't matter how you listen to podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or Audible. There are links to each one, so it doesn't matter what kind of phone you have. Maybe you're not even using your phone. You can use your laptop and computer, too, to pull up those episodes. And your comments and your likes and your reviews on those platforms mean the world to us and actually helps us to get more exposure. So please drop those comments on whichever platform you listen to the Best in Show podcast. And like always, we will be reading those comments throughout the fall season uh, to kind of highlight some of those great words that come back from you, our listeners. So uh, you can also email us. Brian and I have a, an email dedicated to this podcast. It's podcastbestinshow at gmail.com. Again, podcastbestinshow at gmail.com. You can send us an email with your comments or you can upload them on whichever platform you uh, listen to us. One of my favorite times of the day is just standing in the barn after I'm all done feeding, listening to the rabbits eat and watching them bounce around their cages, happy and healthy and thriving. Well, I'll tell you what, after the summer of goat shows and being gone, there's nothing like coming home to the rabbit tree and the signs of peace and tranquility, as you said, as they as they eat on their straw or hay or, or their food or going through litters. It's uh, it's the, the best part of, of raising rabbits in cavies. And clean rows of happy rabbits mean, hopefully, <laughs> awarded rabbits later on in the, in the season. And of course, having well-designed cages makes a huge difference. I don't think there's a rabbit raiser alive that doesn't yearn to have a rabbitry full of KW advanced design cages, feeders, and nest boxes. That little blue nameplate with a KW bunny on it is how I always can tell those that take care of their animals and do it with the utmost uh, seriousness. These are the highest quality cages you can get, and they've been around for 45 years. That's KW cages, and they've always led the industry with the most innovative designs and highest quality hand craftsmanship made here in the United States. Right now, if you go to kwcages.com and use the promotion code, the rabbitry, you can get $10 off your orders over $75. And like every convention, KW Cages will be represented there with a vendor booth in Reno later this year. So when you put your orders together to pick up at the convention and you do it online, use that promo code, the rabbitry for $10 off your orders of $75 or more. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, you're welcome, Bryony. It's uh, my honor and a pleasure. So to start out, as we do with every guest, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in rabbits and who your, some of your early mentors were in the hobby? Oh, well, we have to go back a ways. Uh, I'm not sure if I want to go back that far, but, uh, but I was a kid, and uh, I had um, a number of small pets always wanted to have some kind of little small uh animal since i was probably seven or eight and so they got me um a hamster my uh for my birthday my grandma would come over with a box of donuts and inside there would be a hamster <laughs> so the problem with those guys is they only live for a very short time and uh and as it turns out i was a sensitive kid and so they got tired of the turnover of these hamsters so then one day she brought me a Dutch rabbit. 
And uh, so that was a start. I think I was 11 years old. And um, so, and I've always had rabbits. I'm not, you know, huge on the show uh, circuit, but I've gotten, I've won classes in, in at conventions, you know, and uh, I had uh, a, uh, I won a class in, where was it? Oh, Tampa with a checker giant. Of course, there wasn't as much competition, but I'm very happy to, with, with some wins, but mostly I've always loved rabbits and that the rabbits have been my whole life. And, um, you know, from that, uh, first start is kind of where, or from that first Dutch. And then we got a few more and we had to build cages and kind of went on from that. And then it really went on from that with the cage building. Um, you started a company to support your hobby. Uh, yes, I did. But, um, that I I have to be a little careful when I say I started the company at 13 because what I really did is um, I did sell a cage so I did I mean I it was a legitimate sell sale from a cage that I made but um, but I didn't at 13 years old say oh I'm going to start a company and and here it is and it it just <laughs> it kind of evolved but uh, my granddad who was a retired aerospace worker uh, well. I think what it was, was my, my dad traveled a lot and he, and he was very supportive of all his kids, a really good dad, but he, he did a lot of traveling. And so I needed a hutch. And so, um, we got sent or five kids, one at a time, we got sent to my grandparents' house, not very far away. And we could have a, the sleepover. And so the purpose of this sleepover was to come home with a rabbit hutch. And, uh, so somehow my mom or somebody must've talked, uh, this was her dad. And so we spent the whole time building uh, a pretty pretty cool hutch, pretty ultimate hutch. And, uh, you know, and looking at some of the old hutch designs, my grandpa was born in 1909. So uh, the design was kind of old school, had chicken wire and had a little place that they, they went in the back and so on. But, um, but it kind of started from that because we, we put him to the task of doing that. And he helped me and showed me the way and learned a lot. Definitely my, my mentor through a lot of sort of the, the building process, the discipline of how to take care of tools and how you do everything just right uh, definitely came from him. But then I think where it evolved was uh, we went back a second time to do another two hole hutch. And then um, I think after that, and like everybody's first hutch, I think I can say this, I've heard this story over all the years, the first hutch, you know, using today's dollars is like a $500 project, maybe more, but it's a ridiculously expensive project with all the lumber and everything they, they get. And it's, and it's probably the, the shortest live hutch because it's not really designed to, to last like, like kind of our modern wire cages, but it's still a labor of love and it, and it serves a purpose and it's a start, but it seems like most everybody has one of those hutches. And so that was my grandpa's role was uh, getting us those first few hutches, but at the same time, I'm learning how to build, I'm learning how to do stuff. And then when it came time for the fourth hole, addition to the rabbitry, uh, that was when I had uh, done enough reading and studying and got ideas on how I wanted to build my next hutch. And so what about the, you know, the process of designing and creating new products appeals to you? Um, well, um, I think... I have to give a, a shout out to uh, one of my early mentors, um, a guy everybody knows named Bob Bennett. 
And he's a, a, a nice character in a rabbit world that's been around for a long time. But when I was in uh, sixth grade, I did a book report on raising rabbits a modern way. And so one of the points of his book, Modern Way, uh, was to, he's kind of, I mean, he was a, a promoter guy or still is promoter guy and always looking for kind of the future and the modern aspect of raising rabbits and he was influenced by ed Stahl and all those old guys but he wanted like the the coolest modern design basically something that makes it easier to take care of and it gets back to those original hutches that i was talking about those labors of love there's always the the corner that's absolutely rotting out because it has three inches of solid floor uh where you know the framing came together and the rabbit is peeing as they do in the corner and um and it's a mess and then to try and clean it you're you know it's that major uh you know pulling it out trying to clean it and it's you know the all weekend thing so i don't know to answer your question i would say uh always looking for a better way an easier way uh a more sanitary way to do things uh you know that just in a general way those are those are all very motivational to me so you are another one of Bob Bennett's kind of long distance students, like several of our guests that we've had. Yes. Bob Bennett uh, is, he's, he's a really, uh, he's a nice guy, an interesting guy. And, um, and I didn't get to really know him that well until, you know, I was all, you know, an adult and, and so forth. But, um, but when you're a kid and uh, you're reading those books and, and he did a pretty good, you know, presentation of, how to raise rabbits, and um, and I'm sure there are plenty of old timers or old schoolers or people that are really dyed in the wool that would look at it and say, "Well, no, wait, I have my own way, and here's how I differ." And that's fine, but for the newbies, this is an excellent presentation, and I think that what he's done um, over the years uh, has been great. And uh, you know, just alone, I know I'm not I'm not trying to <laughs> I'm not trying to promote Bob Bennett here, but just as that mentor, one of the things I look to is if you look back at the old DRs and maybe even the current ones, um, that old membership contest, he was my mentor on that because he led the membership contest uh, for many, many years. He may still, for all, for all I know, I haven't kept on it in, in the most recent years, but he was always number one. And we're not talking about like 10 or 20 members. It'd be like 50 and 60. I mean, just uh, heads above everybody else. And uh, for a long period of time, that was my inspiration for, we would pass out the uh, membership applications. This is, you know, kind of before online stuff. It, it was mostly through those little membership applications, and they would print them with our name on it. And um, and then I would try, at least on the commercial side, to always lead that contest, and and did so for for quite a while, and would like to do it again. But like everything, there's only so much time to to get things accomplished. Yeah, it's really, it's interesting because I was one of those kids, too, who found a Bob Bennett book in the library. And the one that I started with was um, called the TFH Book of Pet Rabbits. I think that was a company that did, you know, several species. And Bob was the one who authored the rabbit book. And looking back at that, um, you know, 40 years later, it is not at all the information that you see coming, you know, about pet rabbits. Now, it was breeder information. You know, it talked about raising litters. It talked about feeding pelleted diets and keeping rabbits on wire floors and, 
you know, stuff that does not go along with the um, the pet side of things now, but just that ability to have good information available in libraries, you know, in the 70s and 80s for people was really, I think, a great thing for our hobby and probably more so than we realize. Um, I know he's one of our bucket list guests to get on the podcast. Oh, nice. No, he will be outstanding. Very prolific author. He had a book called uh, Bob Bennett's Guide to Winning Rabbit Shows, which was... Uh, I don't know if it was really popular. I have that book, and I thought everybody had it. It's a, it was a really cool little book. Um, big feature on Glenn Carr's uh, Checker Giant, Best in Show. And, uh, and, and then he did the Boy Scout Manual. Anyways, it goes on and on. Yeah. So um, speaking of libraries, tell us how you got involved in the ARBA library from the beginning. Uh, well, uh, you have to go back. Uh, I have to count. The decades, but I think it, I think it was uh, ninety four, somewhere in there, ninety four, ninety five. Um, it, well, it was after the Peoria convention. I think the first it was the first Peoria convention. So I'd have to pull out my. You think I would know this history, but it would have been ninety six. Ninety six. Okay, ninety six. <laughs> Let's see, ninety six, and um, and somehow I went to the general membership meeting. And Glenn had mentioned uh, in some comments, I think it was there, that um, they had all this old stuff that had accumulated. Some of it came from, from Jimmy Blythe. Some of it was um, you know, things that people would send in, but nothing like what we have now. But, he, but there were enough things that, that he was kind of, uh, kind of looking uh, forlornly for to the future, like, you know, I wonder what's going to happen. It'd be sure nice if somebody could organize this stuff and do something. And, and anyways, when he was saying that it was like, it was clicking. Cause I mean, I like all that stuff. I mean, it was like history. And when I was a kid, there were a whole number of what I call old timers. Now, I don't know if I thought of them as old timers then, but now I clearly say they were old timers. And, um, you know, some of them were judges and, uh, some of them were ARBA board members. And most of it was here from the West coast. And they were telling stories, and I loved listening to the old the old timer stories, all that kind of stuff. And so, um, anyways, I just had a ton of interest in that. So after that convention, um, I wanted to go see the ARBA office. So we drove out there and had a little meeting with Glenn Carr and kind of told him, uh, "Here's what I think we ought to do." And um, and it was probably a little bit over the top because it was kind of like what we've done now. And it's not that he was opposed to it, but there was a lot to digest there. Because I, I immediately was thinking, well, we ought to do it like a museum. And when you say museum, a lot of people think, oh, man, it's like one of those New York places where you go into a room and there's one painting and you stare at it. And it's like all uppity and tutty and, oh, what? no, no, no. It's more like, um, I don't know, different museums I've been to. Like the Henry Ford is like a great one because it's just all kinds of cool Americana stuff on display with a little description of it and it just draws you in and if it's in the rabbit hobby it's like uh you know there's an automatic interest by by members uh to be interested in it and to be able to get that on display and see it um and but you know also the library aspect and you know this this it, it has two different faces maybe three faces but the library aspect is like organizing all of the magazines organizing all the books and they're extensive i mean not just a few there's a lot and um but at the time it was like there were some things it wasn't quite 
it wasn't as library ish as it as it became as you know as more volumes and more things were acquired um so anyways the my interest was always in sort of having a visual display knowing though that we also needed to have a, a background of all of the the you know the archives all the the uh, publications um for reference because you, you know you can't well that that became sort of the challenge like there's a photo who's in the photo we, you know it's an old photo clearly it's from like the 1920s or even older but nobody knows it's been lost to history and so that's where the sort of the library aspect is that you have to be able to study the object or the photo and then learn who was it was it important and and often often it was because every little bit had a part in it so anyways that was probably more than what you wanted to know but all of that i found to be exciting and um anyways it, 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 so at the beginning uh it wasn't it was i kind of wanted it to be one way but i knew that it was going to be uh it wasn't going to happen overnight and so where did the or how did the process begin of like organizing stuff you know where do you start with a task like that well it the very first thing uh when you when you're trying to create something from nothing is you have to have money and <laughs> it, it required money to do it so really my first role in it uh before i could think about all the things that i that i thought it ought to be was to be able to raise money to do it because essentially there was nothing there were there were some objects some boxes of items there were definitely lots of old dr magazines and old standards and things that uh, had been uh accumulated just really in the in the changeover from probably from the jimmy blythe era to um to ed Piper and then um, and then Glenn, not a whole lot survived before Jimmy Blythe. There might have been a few, but um, anyways, there's no place to do it. I mean, the, the Airbnb headquarters had offices, and so the first notion was we need a a quote library, which is really a big room. What we do in the room, who knows? We just want a blank slate to put in shelves, files to do sort of that library aspect where you've got the documents organized and um, and then the objects really need some kind of shelves, displays, display cabinets or what, whatever. So building a room, let alone furnishing it. Um, and then one other concept was a room could be kind of dual purpose. And so that's where the idea of um, putting a, um, a conference table in there, which you kind of need to, you know, like library tables, a library, let's put a table in there. And then in the in the in between times, it would make a very nice conference room for the for the headquarters office. And uh, so somewhere there, ninety six, whenever it was, um, I did like a concept drawing, which is just kind of an interior three D sketch. It's just uh, imagination, like what what could it look like? And so it had some things that looked like an exhibit and some shelves and this and that. And from that drawing, then we started asking for money. And so that's where it came down to was getting, um, you know, raising money. And so in that first year, if my memory is right, we did about 30,000. Well, I should back up. We got seed money from um, three, well, three sources. I mean, I donated some uh, and then uh, Mary Louise Cowan donated a nice chunk and um, the Ohio State Club uh, donated uh, some money. And so those were sort of the three seed donors to get it going and i think that was the first 10 grand 
and then um, Purina came in shortly after that, and they shipped in a few other thousand, and we were on our way. And uh, what was happening at that time is there were a lot of kind of legacy clubs. Um, some of it's kind of sad because they, you know, that was kind of the era, the internet era, where monthly club meetings and the traditional club. Uh, kind of the, you know, the, the, the club uh, business model or the club model was evolving into social media stuff. And so you had a lot of these clubs that had been around 40, 50 years and they were, they were going out of business, so to speak, or they were pa passing the torch on. So they would take their residual treasury and send it to the ARBA. And so we were getting lots of very nice don donations that way. Um, but that, I don't want to characterize that. that's where a lot of the, I mean, that's where all the donations came from. There are a lot of clubs that were ongoing concerns that were really old time and established clubs. And they were sending in $500, $1,000, $2,000. And um, that was uh, very rewarding. So we were able to, we were able to, to raise the money in, in about a year's time, I would say. That's really, you know, a pretty short period, especially for a time, you know, before social media. Yes, because really the only call was out in the DRs. Uh, we're, you know, each, each, I don't know, uh, each month, but there were a few times where we did the call for it. Um, I don't remember if we did, I don't think we did any email campaigns because we had email then, but I don't think we did anything like that. But, um, but anyways, it, it came forward and Glenn had, um, I think it worked with Gary Moore, but they came up with a set of plans and they, they uh, built out the room. I think it was about 20 foot by 30 foot. I think if I'm remembering right, uh, which was seemed like a pretty good size room, but um, looking back, it was like, Oh my gosh, if we, if only we knew what we knew now, almost 30 years later, uh, we, we would have made it bigger, but you know, you can't really look at it that way. It's, uh, and there was actually more room possibly to do more, but it was kind of in the back, but it served its purpose really well because for the last 30 years, we've accumulated a ridiculous amount of stuff. I mean, there's, there's, it, I'm just so impressed when I go in and have the time, which I've had, uh, you know, this, this year to look at stuff and um, it's kind of beyond my imagination of what I, I thought we had accumulated. It's, it's, you know, as far as like complete sets of magazines, defunct magazines and, and, you know, uh, 19th century, 20th century uh, commercial, uh, fancy hobby, all those. Uh, and then, um, you know, advertising and, and we have the Ed Stahl papers, we call them, where we, we have, um, oh, maybe a three inch high stack of correspondence that he had all from the, onion skins uh for those that know onion skins i probably have to explain maybe but they you know when you did when you typed a letter you did the carbon copy which you know when people see cc on the emails maybe they, they don't know that but uh that that's where it comes from but you put a, a sheet of carbon and then you put maybe two or three sheets of carbon to print on multiple copies because you had to send them to the different directors so we have all these ed stall letters that have his original or not the original letter they have several copies that had this the thinnest paper you could imagine. That's where onion skin comes from, and then um, and then and some of them are barely readable because they were down so low in the stack, being punched by the typewriter that um, the carbon only went through. But um, that's just one little example of things that I didn't know we had, and there they are. And and read the Ed Stahl papers for an hour, and you're going to learn a lot about our history. 
Very interesting. Um, those of us in the Midwest who still have day of show entry, we see carbon copy comment cards. They're kind of becoming a thing of the past with more day of show. But um, uh, but those are carbon less copy. Ah, okay. Not meaning to be too nerdy about it, but but yes, no. but, the, but it's all the, it's one and the same, just modern versus the old school. Very interesting. So um, since there has been, you know, a little bit of discussion about it, can you tell us how the library funds are handled as compared to the ARBA general funds? Well, yeah, the, the library uh, funds go under the foundation, as I understand it, which is a 501c3. So that's a nonprofit. It's the type that if you did donate, uh, which if anybody wants to send it to PO Box 400 Knox, Pennsylvania, would gladly take your, your donation but those are totally tax deductible, which means you could take that canceled check or you can ask for a receipt from the Air Bay office, and that's a direct uh, deduction from your taxes if, if, you know, if, you, do, if, you, if you itemize your taxes. Uh, so um, those funds are separate from the general fund or the youth scholarship, and so they're earmarked for the library, and um, they've been spent on a number of things, such as the... Um, the the original build out back in the 90s and then um the next there's kind of a phase of acquiring things when uh, bobby whitman was involved and he we were fortunate that he found um a collection in england that uh, as it turns out is the largest collection of rabbit only uh doc magazines or documents uh mostly magazines mostly the fur and feather but there there were other volumes and uh, going back to about 1887 uh, to the present, we still receive the fur and feathers, but it's um, something like maybe 30 feet of shelf space of, of magazines, uh, you know, mostly showing the, the British fancy, um, but very important to our history because our history really moves directly from, uh, the, from the British fancy. Uh, but anyways, that, so there's an example of what it was spent on and, um, and then, um, you know, there, there, a lot of it is donations by uh, people, anonymous donations and so forth, that, um, you know, we didn't necessarily raise all of the money to do everything that we did. Some of it we just uh, did because we, we wanted it done. No, I think that's great. You know, you see sometimes someone who has been, you know, part of the rabbit industry and there'll be memorials to the library or, or the youth scholarship or both. And, and I love that, that that history is that important to people. Um, I think it's special. Yes, we do have a plaque there that has um, at least the, a lot of the initial ones that, that were done um, in, in memory of, of various individuals. And um, anyways, it's kind of historical to look at that see all the folks that have contributed for a long time. So to move forward a little bit, um, the ARBA was preparing to sell the Bloomington property and located the property in Knox. And so what were kind of your uh, first thoughts when you saw that or saw photos of that as to how that could be transformed into what it is now? Well, um, there, there's, there are a couple of things. One of them was um, I had gone to the, the temporary headquarters that we had, which was uh, just pretty nondescript. And it was just utilitarian to get it done. It was just some rented space. And uh, it was uh, so anything from there was going to be more exciting. There was a kind of a high bar because what uh, 
Glen had was really a very nice facility. There's nothing uh, to be said that was bad about that. But we but we moved into something that's different. And over the, the time, for a few years, there were different properties that Eric had looked at. And, and there was one that I looked at or that he sent me a photo of. And I'm kind of thinking, I don't know. Would this be it? As, as it turns out, it was an old church building. It was really old. It was 1890s. And it had a bell tower that I had done a, a concept drawing. Well, maybe we could make that, make it historical. And we'll put, you can put a clock tower there. I've seen that where that's done. And it looks kind of historical and there were old buildings from that period that would have a clock tower in that in that period or in that area it was like it kind of worked but you know what it wasn't quite right and so um one of the things about knox pennsylvania that whole region is that to a certain degree it's you know it's the old rust belt a lot of it has been forgotten in time and why that's really great historically is you can find these old buildings that are nearly intact I mean, whereas they haven't been bastardized with remodels and mod, you know, metal siding or you know, something to try and uh, update them in the 1930s or the 1950s or the 1960s and so on. And so this building, um, when I first saw it, which is, I guess, the second part of this answer, it was a little bit of a shocker because um, the first photos I saw, it had not been uh, renovated yet or mostly painted. And it had been kind of allowed to get weathered but um, however, um, if you can look below that, and I, I hate it when they say on these shows it had good bones, but when you look below that and you saw that you are, you're stepping back to the 1880s and, um, you know, I look at, at details like, uh, you know, are, are the moldings there that, you know, are those the original windows or, you know, they put in aluminum windows and, and in some ways you start looking at those details and, um, it's like everything is right here, and and it, I don't know. It's like looking at an old car, old machine, or something, and you have to be able to look like, what is this going to look like when it's been patch filled and painted, and you know, just the the normal things you do to you know kind of get it renovated and brought up, and so um, that way it was kind of exciting. But I have to say, the very first time this is after it been painted and it really had a gorgeous curb appeal, Eric did a fantastic job getting all of the the contractors and the, and the painters and all that. And, and Eric is not a lavish spender yet. He did a lavish job because it looked very nice. I don't mean a lavish, like, like with money, but being able to rally troops and get people to do things. It says, you know, the floors were redone spectacular. But when I first walked in the front door and thought, okay, what, what could we do here for a museum library and all that? It did take, I would say 24 hours. It wasn't until the second day I was there that it started clicking and tacking like, okay, well, we could do this. But at first it was just kind of like shock, like, oh man, how are we going to do all this? It's a big building and there's, and it's old and, and so on. Uh, but the um, part of that first trip was we went out to a, uh, a big antique mall, this, uh, this place that this, they, they kind of had architectural stuff and a lot of old stuff, but they, they had a ton of old display cases like you'd see in an 1890s, early 1900s building. And so once we went there and I started seeing these and we kind of like went wild. I said, okay, we got to get this one. And we're going to get this one. We're going to get this. And we ended up, I think, with five items. And the guy who ran the place was really cool. Gave us kind of like a basement tour of other stuff they had. We started getting those. And what you realize is that, okay, here's a display case. Like there's one in the Belgian hair exhibit. It's an old pine cabinet that was probably in a in a store some kind of a general store 
And it was a little bit rough, like primitive, they call it in, in the antique world. But it's okay because it fit right in with this old building. And when you saw it, I mean, everything, you couldn't buy something and have it be that great. And so anyways, that ended up being some of those Belgian hair articles we put on display, some of the old books. And I think that was the point where uh, it kind of, like the vision, like what could this be, turned from you know, initial shock to, okay, here's our groove. This is what we're going to do. So what were some of your other sources of inspiration as you were kind of coming up with the plan for the museum and the library? Well, I, the, the idea, um, this was in about March that it was Alan who came to me and said, Oh, did you know they're gonna have a grand opening? I said, Oh no, I didn't know there's gonna be a grand opening. Oh, wow, okay. He said, well, they really need you. <laughs> I said, okay, well, let me talk to Eric. And then Eric said, yes, yes, we need you. Could you help? And I was like, that's nice. That's flattering. Thank you. I'll, I'll help do something. And so there, I think the initial challenge that got me to like, how, what are we going to do was first of all, bringing what my own kind of frame of reference was what a museum ought to be, which is not like the Manhattan haughty stuffy thing, but just like a, a cool visual display learning center, kind of an experience trying to bring an experience, like bringing, bringing people to a different period of time. And, but from March to June is not very much time to do that. And even though I kind of like, uh, like kind of a hobby knowing about ARB history and soaking it in, there's only so much you can get, um, you know, that's available. And so that became the first challenge is to go back there. And first of all, look for visual displays or uh, visual items, because I knew that we're going to, it was going to be very graphical what we wanted to be able to display. I mean, you can have an object in a display case, which like the, one of the original rules is if we, if we put something on display, it must have a, uh, what's called in the museum world, an object label and an object label is nothing more than just, it could be like a three by five card. that just tells you what it is. Maybe it gives you the year, the vintage of what it is and like what it was. And it could be just a sentence. It doesn't have to be very much. Um, and more is better. That's fine. But if somebody is looking at it, they're going to, they're going to want to know what it is and it needs to be able to be self-explanatory. And then the other one was, okay, well, we've got all these photos, tremendous amount of photos, 90% of which are not identified. We don't know who the people are. And that, that gets really, um, it's kind of sad, you know, like finding, uh, an old album and maybe, you know, that it's like your great greats in your family, but nobody took the time to write anything down. So you don't know, you know, who knew nobody knew that was going to be around that long. So that was the second thing was to, uh, or the second part of uh, kind of getting organized was to go back there. And so what I would do is using the um, Small Stock Magazine, which is one of the, the biggest resources we have, some Fur and Feather, but mostly Small Stock, some of our own photo archives where we have um, original photos. And then I would start taking pictures, like replicating them using like a, my high res camera phone. Um, and then, and so I took, over, I guess the first two trips back there, thousands of photos. I mean, a ridiculous amount, I don't know how many, but thousands of photos. I didn't know which ones I wanted to use, but um, to make the cut, they need to be quality that they could reproduce. And then the second part was I had to be able to research to say who's in them or tell the story of, you know, what is this photo about? Because I, 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 that was one of my frustrations over all the years is, you know, each year we put stuff on display at the convention and I love, I love looking, I look at every year, I look at the same photo for, that one of uh, the, the car, I looked at that for probably 20 years and, it, and, it, and that one actually has the people identified. But the question is, well, okay, but 
uh, well, we know where they're going. So the photo tells a story, but you, but you still want to know more, like who were these people? And, you know, were they, who, you know, were they any who's who's in the, in the, in the rabbit world? And um, as it turns out in a big way, they were, um, and I didn't know that. And so that was probably the biggest surprise, the biggest motivation for me was one of those photos that I thought, well, it's kind of weird. And it's, you know, it's like, who's going to drive across country with that on their car? And then, but after I got into it and learned, well, that's Lou Griffin. Well, who's Lou Griffin? He's probably, you know, Charles Gibson was sort of the founder, original founder of the idea of a national club that survived. Um, but Lou Griffin was really the, the only surviving original founder. Surviving means he's passed away today, but surviving meaning that he survived when it was the national pet stock. He survived when it became the national breeders and fanciers. He survived when it was a American rabbit and Katie breeders. Um, he was the secretary of the Flemish club from the very beginning. And, um, and here he is, he's, he, you know, probably not a household name in the rabbit world. I think he will be once people learn the story. And so we can't let that be lost to history. And so that was very exciting to find out, okay, here's who Lou Griffin was. And then how that story meshes in so many places. Uh, he was the only person to be uh, president of all three organizations. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of little Lou Griffin tidbits and, you know, and then, and then you got the car. <laughs> Yes, we got the car. So um, tell me, you said every museum needs three things. What are those? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like when you go to a museum and, um, and I've been to presidential libraries and museums and places, but you come outside, actually in Louisville, I went to the, the Muhammad Ali Museum when we were there. So there's another museum experience. And, I, and I'm always looking, I'm always thinking about our library. But you, when you first come there, they've got the poles outside with the banners that are um, promoting whatever the sort of the featured exhibit and uh, you know you can't you can't feature all the exhibits but they'll just pick one maybe they pick a couple but they'll pick one and it's supposed to like bait your interest like here's you know here's a little tidbit of what you're going to see inside and so um, the Belgian hair boom um, became the um, the first uh, featured exhibit so that's number one you have to have you have to have the poles with banners and so we ended up making them like parking lot poles and it had some kind of ornate cast uh, poles made out here in California. I had them shipped out there. And so those were a cool element. I thought they were very museum-like. And then the second thing is, uh, well, you have to have a car. And I don't know why you have to have a car. What does a car have to do with rabbits? And, uh, but, you know, every museum, you know, even the presidential libraries will have a car. They'll have, you know, they'll have the presidential limousines. They'll have the car. Uh, what other light, what other museums I've seen? Well, there's always some car. They bring it in. The I've been to the Vatican Museum in Rome. They have all of the Vatican vehicles from the horse and buggy days up to the, the Pope mobile and all that. So, I mean, every obscure museum has some kind of a car. So, why can't we have a car? And uh, when we were going through stuff, I think Ellie and Eric were there. And, um, and I was looking at that famous Lou Griffin and, and Alan Edna Stallings are in the photo and they're in front of the car. And I, and I just kind of said randomly, I said, we need this car. And they were looking at me and they're going, and then Eric's eyes kind of lit up and they're looking at me like I was crazy. I said, we're going to get this car. And so that was uh, probably in May or yeah, that would have been 
that would have been May. It was my last trip before we came out to do the build. So that would have been in probably early, somewhat early May, if, if, I'm, if I remember right. And uh, and so what was the third thing that we have to have? We have to have a third thing. Do banners, we have to have that. Um, well, we have to have something. It'll come to me. Well, we needed the sign. We had to have the roadside sign for sure, but we need that for the headquarters. That's more like a headquarters has to have a sign. So we did that sign, but um, but I don't know, mostly for a museum, it needs to have a visual display where you've got an object and a caption or description. Well, and I think, you know, obviously the car makes for a very, very striking entrance, as do the banners. Um, so it was a process like of getting all of these things ready in that short time span for the grand opening. Oh, Briny, don't go there. Okay, go there. You went there. <laughs> There's a lot... There was a lot that had to happen, and um, and I'm um, I don't mind ambitious projects, and it, it kind of reminded me for those folks out there that have been involved in the convention committee, and uh, I've been very uh, heavily involved in. I guess this is the sixth convention we've done out here, but going back more to the point to like our the first convention we ever did out here back in 2001. It's not just a big show. It's and it's not what people think it is. That okay, it's just it's it's it, there's a there's really a lot, and it's like exponentially more. You know, if you have a hundred exhibitors at a local show, and this is thirty five hundred exhibitors, uh, so I use that con convention analogy because you've got all these things going on. Like, well, you have to have shavings. You got to find the shavings, and you can't go to the feed store. You have to go to a, a forest in 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 Canada. Uh, you know, forest uh, products company, I should say, in Canada or wherever you can, and you have to order a full truckload and have it. I mean, so there's one little aspect using the convention analogy. So here we had a lot of things that we had to do in really, um, I think, well, 100 days. But, you know, as time goes on, the, the deadline keeps getting shorter. And so, uh, you know, like, the, well, the light poles, did we have to have the light poles and the banners? No, but, but I thought that... Um, that's what we needed to do. So, um, and and I, I have to give a lot of credit to Eric because um, he's he's the most supportive. Um, he's he's like such a valuable asset to our association because he's got a really good vision on uh, on you know that he he'd like to see things a certain way, but he like but he gives he gives latitude to people to to do what they need to do. You know to fill in. You know, it's not like he's got doesn't already have a day job. There's a lot that to run the ARBA, let alone try to put on something like this. So, um, anyways, so we had to find a place that could do these polls. Uh, the hotel I was staying at there in Knox, or in I guess it's in uh, uh, Clarion, had some pretty good model. Um, these sort of gooseneck arched uh, traditional decorative light posts. I know this is perfect. And so that company I found, but they'd gone out of business. And it turns out I found another company here in Los Angeles and they were the foundry. So, I mean, they took, uh, you know, scrap aluminum and, and melted it and actually cast the, the poles and the bases and all the stuff. So I was lucky to find them and convince them that they should sell directly to me instead of going through some uh, contractor or uh, uh, one of their distributors. And so they were really good about it. And um, they, the freight turns out it was a lot more, but I made a deal with them. So they, the, the freight 
they, they honored that and they, and they got him there. They said, oh no, it's going to take us like 15 weeks. And uh, I think we had seven weeks to the drop deadline to still have enough time to install them. And they got him there in six and a half weeks. So big credit to, that was Crystal Lighting in Los Angeles. Uh, so, you know, there's that aspect. We had to order picture frames. Uh, we essentially took all of Bob Whitman's collection, which were in various frames, just kind of a motley collection of frames that were in different conditions. They weren't really great, but we wanted everything to be in museum, glass and museum, just everything uniform. Um, and so we found a place there uh, or a place in Texas that would custom make the frames with glass. Most places will only do it with plexiglass. And so uh, Ellie was incredibly helpful in helping us redo, I don't know how many frames. I put. I told her it must have been like 500,000, but uh, we redid a lot of frames. We framed a lot of new stuff. Um, there was a framing part. We, when I, when I went there, they had a desk in the middle of what was going to be the, the main uh, reception, the main part of the museum. I was oh, no, it doesn't quite look right. And, but it had to be functioning. So I, I designed this little, um, what looks like kind of a reception kiosk. It's kind of like a reception counter. But um, behind it was like a, what I call a power station. It's like a big L-shaped workspace. So Kevin, who does the registrations, has probably the coolest state-of-the-art registration workspace. Um, but we did it all beadboard and made it match the whole 1890s look inside. And then, you know, it serves a purpose if somebody were to come and, they, you know, it's like a, looks like a visitor's counter. You're going to come up and if they, they want to pay for an admission to, to see the exhibits or anything, they could do that. I don't know. There, we, the neon sign. Oh, yeah, the neon sign. That was number three. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going back two questions ago. But the number three thing, every museum needs a neon sign. Why? Because uh, neon's cool. I mean, I think it is, but you have to explain to people today what neon is because there's, um, they're redoing neon and LEDs. It kind of looks like neon, but it's not. So uh, that's where the neon sign came from, the, the old retro neon sign. I love that neon sign. Um, so tell us a little bit about the car. Okay, so the car, uh, we kind of decided we need the car and I, okay, I'm going to get that car. I spent literally nonstop every day looking for that car, a car. It's a 1937 Chevrolet four-door sedan. And they called it a, a, a special six. It was a super six. Special six, six-cylinder. They made it as a special six or a special eight. And we don't know what it was. We can't tell by looking. But credit goes to Sandra White's son, Brandon, because he's a car aficionado. And he was able to tell, looking at the photo, you got yourself a 37 Pontiac. So that was helpful. So I'm looking for it. It comes in two versions. There's the, um, there's the sedan, and there's one called Touring. Touring has this big square trunk. It looks like somebody took a square trunk and added it to the back, but it's actually part of the sheet metal. Big square trunk. And that is not what our heroes in the, in the, in the mentor photo had. They had just the regular sedan because you can see the back end of it just comes down. So I would say 99% of what I found was a touring model. And no, we can't have that. It's got to be the exact car. And uh, so, and I was thinking of compromising. You know what? Eh, that's kind of esoteric. Nobody's going to care. Don't be so ridiculous about it. 
but no, <laughs> no, we're, we have to have the right one. So anyways, this is auto trader and auto, uh, you know, eBay motors and, and you can find a lot of 37s, but not this one. And so I was kind of giving up, we could find a lot of them that had sold in the last year. And so I even went so far as finding one that had sold. I thought, well, I'll call this guy and see if we can talk him out of it. And uh, my daughter actually did some uh, Google searching to find this guy. He was a college professor in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, we got down, so we even found his email. We found his phone. We sent off to him, hey, can we get the car that you bought last year? And we never heard it back. <laughs> we never heard back. And time was ticking. So then I went to uh, an app I would have never used called uh, OfferUp. And I mean, I don't use that. Maybe, maybe people use it. All the kids probably use it. I don't know. But it was like, it was fate because I was really in the window of time that if I can't find something this week, okay, we're not going to get it. And big deal. We hadn't promised it to anyone. You know, any of the stuff that didn't come about, okay, it doesn't come about. And we'll just, but, but it's part of that cool factor. A museum needs a car. So I found this one. It was in the Arizona desert. A guy, um, his dad had it in the 1960s, garaged it. He passed away in the 2000s. The son got it had to move it out. So they move it out to the desert and store it outside, which the desert is dry. So it's a great place if you can find, they call it a desert find, a barn find or a desert find. So it had like light scale rust on it, but nothing that had rusted through. I mean, it was, the body was in spectacular shape and there may be a few dents. So we found this car and I told the guy, he was about three hours from me and I was so dang busy working on stuff that I can't go out there to go look at this car, let alone go pick it up. And so anyways, I made a deal with the guy and, um, and I think it was one of the better deals I made because he, um, sight unseen sold it to me. I mean, this is people calling on, on, uh, social media ads or internet ads and all the scammers, but I convinced him that, um, could you deliver it? Oh, well, I'll ask my son, he said, and I know it was a long shot. So anyways, he called back. Yes, my son will deliver it. We'll have it there Saturday, which was perfect for my timeline because that would give me about four or five days to get it ready, because then we had to ship it back to uh, uh, to Pennsylvania in time for the grand opening. So anyways, sight unseen or no deposit, no security. They put it on a trailer. They drove it three hours down here. And I could have said, I mean, if somebody wanted to be a jerk, they'd say, I don't like it, or I'm not going to pay that much, lower the price. But no, it was a it was kind of a gentleman's offer. And, and so... Um, and it, and it was everything he said it was. It was, there was no, no gotchas or surprises. And in, uh, even though it was a little bit of, um, a little sore on the eyes to look at in its state, you had to look at it and see, no, 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 that, that, that thing is in really good shape. And so that was how it came about. Um, every part was on that car except for the gas cap, which I was able to find. So it has a gas cap. Um, we got period plates from Colorado, 1937 are the plates because, in 1938, when they're going to the show, they needed uh, to make sure they had, uh, I'm sorry, 1938 plates, because the, the, the registration had to be current. Back in the 30s, you got a new plate every year, not a sticker, you got a brand new plate. So I was able to find on eBay, they weren't super cheap, but I found a set of Colorado plates from 1938. And then in our archive, we had the beautiful Eat More Domestic Rabbit Meat, uh, uh, thing that would have probably been from the 40s, but we cheated a little bit and put it on the 1930s car. And anyways, it was all super cool. 
It is super cool. And it's such, you know, a wonderful welcome to the museum. I know when we got there for the grand opening, you know, we saw the signs leading up and that was the first, you know, like artifact that we saw and what a wonderful welcome that was. Um, Walking up to the front porch, you know, it looks just welcoming and peaceful with the chairs and the flowers. Brandy, that was an amazing interview with Kevin. And I will say that Kevin's probably one of the most influential people on my life. I've known him for more than 20 years and I've worked alongside with him. I've worked for him, still do. And uh, when, I, when I do things, I often think, uh, how would Kevin see this? What would he, what would he say? So I'm going to read kind of the Kevin Whaley story. It's a, it's a really good one. Uh, the year was 1975. And after a relatively short life of his second pet hamster, KW Cage's founder, Kevin Whaley, at 12 years old, decided with his parents that a rabbit would make a better pet. After acquiring that first Dutch rabbit, oh, Brian, you'll be excited about that, he couldn't find a suitable hutch or cage that offered enough space and protection. With the help of his grandfather, a retired master aerospace fabricator, they set out to build the ultimate hutch. At this young age, Kevin steadfastly observed his granddad's every meticulous step, his use of materials, tools, and old-school methods. Soon, Kevin Whaley had a rabbit hobby, and it expanded to where he was building second and third hutches. It wasn't long before the family and friends were asking to buy their own designed enclosures from Kevin. In 1976, his supportive parents allowed him to set up a small workshop in his family garage in San Diego. Using money he earned from his paper route, he purchased materials and tools, and work began after school and on weekends. He reinvested early revenues to purchase classified advertisements in the San Diego Union and the Evening Tribune newspapers. Through grade school and into high school, he plugged along, building animal enclosures, dog houses, and the like. He maintained a paper route and other part-time jobs. His mom, Catherine, would become his first employee helping to assemble cages. He gradually outgrew the garage operation and moved to his first factory, a rented small warehouse in El Cajon, California. Little did he know that his burgeoning cottage industry would eventually become his livelihood, which would turn into today's global organization. He took high school and college courses that would enhance his college or his knowledge and design of animal husbandry. He self-taught early CAD design, desktop publishing, welding, and all phases of manufacturing technology. Over the years, Kevin enthusiastically raised all manner of critters, whether they could hop, crawl, or fly, to learn about their vast and varying needs. He was introduced countless designs, or he has introduced countless designs and ideas that have been innovations in the entire industry. He obsessively soaked in all forms of applicable trade knowledge as a junior industrial engineer. Today, Kevin is respected as an expert in animal enclosure design, and he has consulted on zoological enclosure design, including aviaries for the most endangered of avian species. He has consulted on air transportation containers for animals, design standards as published by the International Air Transport Association, also known as IATA. He's a lifetime member of the American Rabbit Breeders Association and the American Federation of Aviculture. Now, over four decades later, the original KW Cages has grown into Cageworks, a diversified manufacturing and distribution company with multiple divisions focused on specialized products to enhance the lives and experiences of animals and their keepers. The company has distributors across the United States and field reps throughout the globe. The many company, the company continues to grow and was recently named to Inc. Magazine in Inc. 5000. 
lists the fastest growing private companies in the United States for two years in a row. The nation's leading zoos, theme parks, animal rehabilitation experts, veterinarians, animal care facilities, and humane organizations are regular customers. Many of the original customers, their children and grandchildren, continue to purchase products from KW Cages. And that was all started by the man in this episode, none other than the legendary Kevin Whaley. So we like to end each episode with a quote. And the one I chose for this episode and Kevin comes from Steve Jobs. And it says, innovation distinguishes between a leader and a follower. That's a great one. And Kevin surely, surely as a Steve Jobs of the rabbit, KV, and as we heard, aviculture industries. We'll see you guys next time. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.